Would you pray with me? Father, in your kindness now come and set us free from that which so easily ensnares us by the power of your word and the conviction that your spirit brings. Um, we ask you to do that for us, for your name's sake, in Christ's name. We're going to continue in the Sermon on the Mount this morning. If you want to open up your Bibles to Matthew chapter 6, that's where we'll be. But first, uh, let me open with this account of, says, for four hours, he held the cylinder, waiting for rescue, what, we, what he believed would be an immediate death. After digging up what appeared to be an unexploded World War I bomb, David Page held on to it, afraid that letting go would detonate the device. While holding the bomb, the terrified 40-year-old from Norfolk, England, called an emergency operator on his mobile phone. He even used the call to issue his last words to his family. The woman police operator kept saying it would be okay, said Page. But I kept saying to her, you're not the one holding the bomb. First responders rushed to the workyard in eastern England, and army bomb disposal experts finally arrived. The drama came to an abrupt end, though, when the bomb was identified. It was actually part of the hydraulic suspension system from a Citroen, a popular European car. And it raises just another one of the problems with worrying. It's really hard to know what you should be worrying about, isn't it? The drought, we were pretty worried about that not too long ago. Uh, swine flu, terrorist attack, stock market, housing market, job market, supermarket. You know that peanut butter, watch out for the peanut butter, you remember that. Um, what should we worry about? Jesus helps us with that question in, in Matthew chapter 6. And if you can start the slides for me, that would be very helpful. He says, therefore I tell you, do not worry about your life. In a word, Jesus answers our question about what we should worry about. And he just says, don't. Okay? Don't worry. This follows what we learned about last week, and I'll need you to advance the slides for me again, please. Can you go to the next slide for me? There you go. Thank you. Therefore, I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat or drink, or about your... That's not the right slide. Can you go one more for me? I'm sorry. They're out of order, and I have no control. So there you go. That's the one. Last week we saw this. Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. No one can serve two masters. Either he will hate the one and love the other or he'll be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. So we've just heard Jesus last week in our study urge us not to store up treasures on earth not to serve money. This week, he's addressing the question that just pops into our minds almost automatically when we hear that teaching. How will I make it if I don't store up stuff? How will I provide for my family? What about food and clothing and shelter? You know, the basic stuff. And Jesus says to us, 
with all the authority that comes from being the living Son of God, do not worry about your life. He says in verse 25 of chapter 6, Jesus says, I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat or drink, or about your body, what you will wear. It is, is not life more important than food and the body more important than clothes. Look at the birds of the air. He says, don't worry. Jesus is essentially saying, don't worry about anything, even the basics. Now, I need to clarify for some of you, when Jesus says, don't worry about food and clothing and drink, this is not permission to worry about everything else. That's not Jesus' intent here. It is not okay um, to worry about who you're going to marry or what about retirement or how to pay for college. That's not what Jesus is saying. He's using these to say, don't worry even about the most reasonable of worries. Food and clothing and what we'll drink. And it's helpful as we listen to Jesus' teaching to realize that he's giving this teaching to people who were often, almost all of them lived with much less margin than we do. These were subsistence farmers dependent on a crop, on a good harvest. These were fishermen dependent upon a good catch. These were tradesmen with no 401k in the bank, even if it was worth half of what it was last year. They had nothing. And Jesus is saying to them, do not worry about what you need. How much more is Jesus saying this to us? See, worry robs us of spiritual vision and energy and fidelity. Worry consumes us. It focuses all our energy on that which we fear most. That's why, for instance, if you're worried this morning about your appearance, when you look in the mirror... You see balding, or graying, or sagging, or bulging. It is what you see. It's how worry works. And if what most shapes your thoughts is really what you worship, then worry makes us idolaters. It preoccupies us. Um, Probably for about the last month, um, I'd been having minor Uh, but persistent chest pain. And I kept just thinking, it's going to go away, it's going to go away, it's going to go away. It didn't, it didn't, it didn't. And so I began to become very attuned to when I was having these chest pains. Finally, it wouldn't go away, and I decided uh, I would go see a doctor. I went to the doctor, they did an EKG, and there was something not right about the EKG. So they sent me right over to a cardiologist, and of course, he put me on a treadmill and tried to kill me. And this is their plan. Somehow they make money doing this. I don't know. But what he said to me after he almost killed me on the treadmill is, you're good, don't worry about your heart. And it's amazing the difference just by that prescription in my attention to those pains. Jesus is saying to us, don't worry. Do not worry. Now, it's not if you have chest pains. It's not that you should not be concerned about them. You should. Um, it can kill you. You should pay attention to it. Right? In the New Testament, we read that Paul had 
concerns for the health of the churches he was responsible for. You can have reasonable, legitimate concerns. But worry is concern on steroids. It is a concern that has grown to the point where it becomes contrary to faith and contrary to love. George Mueller said the beginning of anxiety is the end of faith. And the beginning of true faith is the end of anxiety. And I think he's right. See, worry, it's important this morning that we understand that worry is of absolutely no value. Worry, it has been said, is interest paid on trouble before it is due. It does nothing for you. And Jesus affirms this in verse, um, verse something, somewhere in here. These verses keep moving around on me. Here you go, verse 27. Who of you, by worrying, can add a single hour to his life? Worry accomplishes nothing. It has been likened to a rocking chair. It gives you something to do, but it does not get you anywhere. Okay? That's worry. Jesus closes out this section with the same principle of the worthlessness of worry in verse 34. He says, Therefore, do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. Worry, it seems, is limitless. limitless. It's as limitless as tomorrow. Jesus is just telling us, don't. It doesn't accomplish a thing. And I think we would all admit here, clothed and in our right mind this morning, that worrying about your hair or about wrinkles or about your tan is outright silly. Okay? Stop it. It's silly. But what Jesus is talking about here is not cosmetics. It's life and death. It's food and water and clothing. It's the necessities. How can Jesus say not to worry about those things? And I think what, he's, what he does for us in this text is give us really two critical perspectives, the way we see these things, that determine whether or not we'll be free or slave to worry. The first is how God sees you. And the second is how you see God. Let's look at the first one first, how God sees you. In verse 26, Jesus says, Look at the birds of the air. They do not sow or reap or store away in barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not much more valuable than they? Jesus is saying here, you matter deeply to God more than anything else on earth. Jesus is saying, you matter to God. I am an avid bird watcher. I'm not a particularly good bird watcher, but I love watching birds. If you count my hummingbird feeders, I have nine bird feeders at my house. I, I love watching them. I have one, uh, if you drive past the office, I have one outside my office window. I just really like watching birds, and so I feed them. Um, I feed the birds. I've ha- they eat large quantities of seed. I fill them up so they'll hang around because I like them. Now, I have large quantities of children, too. I have, have five children, and so I have these large feeders in my backyard. <laughs> no, I don't. I don't do that. I have... I have, for each of my children when they're home, I I have a place at the table just for them 
with their own plate and we set feasts before them on a daily basis, if not more often. Now, why don't my children get fed in the backyard like the birds? Because I didn't think of that earlier when they were young. That's the main reason. But also, they matter to me way more than the birds. So I let them in. I, usually. There was a season when that didn't happen, but that's another story for another day. Um, because I love my kids. I value them way more than the birds. So I take way better care of them than the birds. And Jesus is setting us up to say, the Father takes amazing care of his creation. How much better care is he going to take of you? Listen to the language. I'm just going to share a few phrases with you of the way God speaks about his people, the way he speaks about you. From Isaiah 43. Since you, listen to this language, God is speaking here. Since you are precious and honored, in my sight, and because I love you, I will give men in exchange for you and people in exchange for your life. Do not be afraid, for I am with you. A couple pages over in Isaiah 62, God again says, No longer will they call you deserted or name your land desolate, but you'll be called Hephzibah, which means my delight is in her. And your land, Beulah, which means married. For the Lord will take delight in you, and your land will be married. As a bridegroom rejoices over his bride, so will your God rejoice over you. Zephaniah, one of our prayer songs, comes from this verse. The Lord your God is with you. He is mighty to save. He will take great delight in you. In you, he will quiet you with his love. He will rejoice over you with singing. We could go on and on. The Bible says that God refers to you as the apple of his eye. That's where that expression comes from, the way God feels for his people. He says, you're his treasured possession. Of all that God owns, you, you and me, we're his treasured possession. Augustine put it wonderfully centuries ago. He said, God loves each one of us as if there were only one of us to love. How valuable, Jesus says, you are to God. You matter deeply to him. And to help us come to grips with this, Jesus trots out another example. First he says, consider the birds. Then he says, consider the flowers. Why do you worry about clothes? Jesus says, see how the lilies of the field grow? They they do not labor or spin. Yet I tell you that not even Solomon in all his splendor was dressed like one of these. If that's how God clothes the grass of the field, which is here today and tomorrow is thrown into the fire, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? You know, an array of wildflowers is a stunning thing. Before we moved to North Carolina, we lived in Texas. Texas, famous for its blue bonnets. It's absolutely stunning. Here in North Carolina, just between here and Youngsville, this time of year and into the summer, the ditches of the roads fill up with flowers. Okay. Technically, they're weeds, but they're beautiful. And, uh, and when my kids are little, man, we pick them, we bring them home to mom. 
Now, they don't last long. They're good for about a day, and then they're good, like the Scripture says, for throwing them into the fire. But, oh, their beauty. And Jesus says, if God so clothes something so perishable and of so little lasting value, how much more will he clothe you? You matter to God more than anything in all of creation. Jesus is encouraging us with this. And Jesus, by his life and ministry, did much more than teach this. He showed it. Showed it in the way he treated people. Philip Yancey says, in Jesus, God presents a face. Anyone who wonders how God feels about the suffering on this groaning planet need only look at that face. James, Peter, and John had followed Jesus long enough for his facial expressions to be permanently etched on their minds by watching Jesus respond to a hemorrhaging woman, a grieving centurion, a widow's dead son, an epileptic boy, an old blind man. They learned how God felt about suffering. By no means, he says, did Jesus solve the problem of pain. He healed only a few in one small corner of the globe. But he did provide an answer to the question, does God care? And that answer is yes, he does. Most profoundly, he does. And he demonstrated that most profoundly on the cross. We read of it over and over and over in the Bible. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this, while we are still sinners, Christ died for us. He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? God demonstrated his love for you. While you were unworthy, undeserving, wayward, a sinner, by sending Christ to bear your sins on the cross, to suffer in your stead. Jesus teaches us in these words of his. He shows us by his life and he seals it without question by his death on our behalf that you matter deeply to the Father. More, really more than anything else in all creation, Jesus is saying. How God sees you is the first thing that Jesus says should calm our fears and slay our wearies our worries, excuse me. You matter deeply to the Father more than anything else in creation. But the second thing Jesus says in this teaching that we have to get a right perspective on is not only how God sees us, but how we see God. And if we go back to verse 26 and 30 that we've already read, it shows us an important picture of who God is and how he works in our world. Jesus says, look at the birds of the air. They don't sow or reap or store away in barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not much more valuable than they? If that's how God clothes the grass of the field, which is here today and tomorrow is thrown into the fire, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? See, I uh, watch the birds in my backyard. They come, they feed, they fly away. They don't have a secret stash. They don't have a little bird barn where they're carrying off the seed and storing it up for those lean winter months. No, they are provided in Jesus' worldview, not by some evolutionary development that leads to their migration patterns, but by the loving care of 
a sovereign God who has so arranged the world that their needs are provided for. Jesus sees God as actively arranging creation to care for the birds, to provide for the flowers. You know, he, he arranges the orbit, the rotation, and the price, precise location of this spinning ball of a planet. He controls the rainfall, the wind, plant growth, migration patterns. Everything is in place for the birds, for the flowers. How much more for you? So as you watch the care God gives to the birds of the air, the flowers of the fields, he feeds them, he provides for them. With the same reliability, you can be sure of his care for you. Really, you can be more confident of his care for you because you are much more valuable to God than they are. Now, it continues in verse 31. Jesus says, so do not worry, saying, what shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? Notice, the level of concern here is not which shall we eat, or which shall we drink, or which shall we wear. It's not which shall we eat, you know, vinegar or tomato-based. That's not what Jesus is talking about. He's talking about what, if anything, will we eat? Jesus says, don't worry when you have that level of concern. Trust that to God. He goes on to say in verse 32, the pagans run after all those things. That is a mark of faithless people, of a people without faith in a sovereign God. It marks unbelievers, this kind of running after things. See, they are at the mercy of either their own provision or of much more capricious gods who may or may not be feeling good about helping them on any given day. And so they live in fear and worry of what the future may hold. Not so us, Jesus says. Because, he says, the pagans run after all these things. Your heavenly Father knows that you need them. God knows your needs, so you don't have to run after them. The difference between us and And the unbelievers is the confidence in a loving, heavenly Father. It is to set us apart, and it's central to our witness. A worry-free confidence in our Father's loving care. Your heavenly Father cares, and He knows your needs. One of the most vivid um, illustrations of this for me, how important this is, happened long ago uh, for us. just over 15 years ago, when we were visiting family uh, in, in Texas, my oldest son was then five years old. He had just learned how to ride a bike. And as he has done with everything in life that he's learned to do, he did it pedal to the metal as fast as he could go. Okay. At five years old, he is riding this bike like a banshee down there on, on a, a newly paved road in the outskirts of Dallas, Texas. And he hit a patch of gravel and he went face first. And that gravel punctured his upper lip all the way through, and he, as they say, bled like a stuck pig. A face wound on a child is just horrific. We finally got him to stop bleeding. We took him to the emergency room, and when they got him to the emergency room, they took this little five-year-old, and they, they duct-taped him to a board so that they could work on his face without combat. 
But what they did next was fascinating to me. They covered up his eyes with a kind of mask that had one hole in it. And out of that hole, he could see nothing in the room. He couldn't see the physicians. He couldn't see the nurse. Couldn't see anything except me. And so they put stitches inside and put stitches outside and gave him the pain medicine. And uh, we made it through that surgery really for two reasons. One is because the doctor had an uncanny ability to blow up the surgical glove and make it look like a turkey, which was really cool (laughs) to a five-year-old. But the other thing is that in the midst of his worries, in the midst of his troubles, when he was most fearful, he could look out that little hole, and the one thing he could see was his dad. When you're five years old, that's, that's the world to you. So when you're in a troubled place and you're worried, who do you see? What kind of father do you see? Do you see a loving, heavenly father who's in control, who knows your needs, who values you and will care for you? Who do you see? See, that changes everything with respect to your worries. Jesus is showing you in this teaching and in his own face and in his sacrificial love demonstrated on the cross, he is showing you a God who can be trusted even with the essentials of life. Jesus speaks of a God who loves us and is worthy of our trust, even with the basics. Is that who you see in your troubles? Do you know God like that? The closing verse of this passage that we're going to look at today, Jesus says, seek first. But seek first God's kingdom and his righteousness and all these things, they'll be given to you as well. As an act of faith in God's loving care, seek God and his kingdom and the basics will be taken care of. We're to be preoccupied, Jesus says, with matters other than our food and clothes. Life's more than that for us. Life's about storing up treasure in heaven. It's about seeing others' needs first. It's about serving God, not money. And Jesus says, seek these things first. Trust God for your daily bread. Now notice, though, this is one of those conditional promises. If you seek first God's kingdom, then all these things will be given to you. God makes provision for those who seek him. Many commentators think that the way this plays out many times is through this church family. You seek God with all your heart as an intimate, active part of his fellowship, and you'll be taken care of. Essentially, it works this way. You seek God, he cares for you, you seek stuff, and you're on your own. Worry is slain by committing to seek kingdom priorities first as an expression of trust in God. We are free to seek the kingdom as we understand how much we matter to God. He cares for us more than all the rest of creation that he cares for so amazingly. And as we see a God who is in control, who knows our needs, and who loves us unquestionably, a God who is all that a loving father should be and immeasurably more. I ran across the statement of faith by a guy named John Fountain. 
He's a professor of journalism at the University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign, and he used to be a national correspondent for the New York Times, and this is his testimony of all places in the NPR series, This I Believe. He says, I believe in God. Not that cosmic, intangible spirit in the sky that Mama told me as a little boy always was and always will be, but the God who embraced me when my daddy disappeared from our lives from my life at age four. The night police led him down the stairs away from our front door in handcuffs. The God who warned me when we could see our breath inside our freezing apartment when the gas was disconnected in the dead of another wind-whipped Chicago winter and there was no food, little hope, and no hot water. He says, I believe in God, God the Father, embodied in His Son, Jesus Christ, the God who allowed me to feel His presence whenever I found myself in the tempest of life's storms, telling me, even when I was told I was nothing, that I was something, that I was his, and that even amid the desertion of the man who gave me his name and DNA and little else, I might find in him, in God, sustenance. I believe, he says, in God, the God I have come to know as Father, as Abba, as Daddy. And This morning, that's the invitation. Really, it's for you to embrace God as Daddy, as Father, as the one who loves you, a good, strong, caring, knowing father. And maybe, maybe for the very first time, maybe you have never known God like that. He's been a judge, or he's been God the cop, but he's never been your loving father. And this morning, if you will place your faith in Christ as the one who by his death on the cross for your sins and his resurrection from the dead has made for you provision to enter a relationship of faith with God, your heavenly Father. And if you will trust in Christ's good work this morning, then you can begin that kind of relationship with God. Or maybe this morning it's just time for you once again to give back to your Father your worries and your cares. 1 Peter 5, 7 says, cast all your anxiety, cast all your cares on him because he cares for you. This morning, will you cast your cares on him because you believe that you're more valuable to him than anything else in all creation? The worship team is going to come and lead us in our closing declaration of faith in God. And as they do that this morning, I want to invite you if if this is just a season where you're pressed by these kind of worries, um, I want to encourage you to come for prayer. And I'm going to ask our elders and our women's ministry leaders, as you come this morning, one of them will come alongside you and just place their hand on you and just pray for you, that you'd have great faith, that your worries and fears would be given over and cast on God, and that you would know how much he cares for you. So let's stand together. Let's worship our great God. And I encourage you to come for prayer if you're pressed worry this morning so we can pray for you.